Welcome, folks. Welcome, Andrew. It is a very special episode of God versus God, a holiday special. Can you believe it? Yes, the most special of all. Oh my goodness. Never saw this coming, but we we we've always admired the proud tradition of British television shows just to give you that little one-off holiday special. We thought, we yeah. thought why not? Credit yeah. to you, Andrew, for coming up with the idea. I'm glad you did. Uh, very nice chance to like reconnect with with our listeners in this interregnum between our triumphant season finale just a couple short months ago and the premiere of our second season sometime yes. early next year. We'll, we'll we'll leave it at that in terms right. of details. More to come. Uh, but in the middle in the middle zone, we've got this holiday period. Why not celebrate it? And as always, a good time for a festive beverage. Uh, so, Andrew, you mentioned you would have one. Do you have a festive holiday beverage? Today? I do have a festive holiday beverage. It is a uh, non-denominational holiday okay. beverage. So very good. So, and holiday and we'll, blend. Holiday. Oh, it was like a, like a like a a beer. I know it's a cider. A cider. Very nice. Very festive. Well, in a similar vein, uh, my beverage tonight, and I make it a rule not to drink during any of these recordings, but I'm making an exception for for the holiday special. Yeah, seemed seemed right. Uh, This is inspired by the holiday classic film, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, I've seen it at least 30 times. Have you ever had the pleasure? I've seen it a number of times, but not for a little while. Not yeah, And probably not that many. Well... You may recall there's a drink order placed by the angel, the guardian angel, Clarence Oddbody. He joins joins George Bailey at, uh, at Nick's bar. Mm-hmm. He's this fairly dim but well-meaning angel. He's 293 years old. He, he originally considers ordering a flaming rum punch. He thinks that's probably not cold enough for that. So he finally makes up his mind. And when he does, it sounds a little something like this. I got it. Mulled wine, heavy on the cinnamon and light on the cloves. Off with you, me lad, and be lively. That's right. Mulled wine, heavy on the cinnamon and light on the cloves. And that is <laughs> oh, yeah. what I have prepared tonight. So not the drink order of a, of an experienced barfly, to be no. sure. Um, particularly at a place like Nick's, which, according to the proprietor, admittedly serves, a, quote, hard drinks to men who want to get drunk fast. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I figured for holiday podcasting purposes, a little warm mulled wine seemed ideal. So I will, yeah. I will raise my... Festive mug in your direction. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Well, that's nice. Well, since we were last on the air, Andrew uh, had a great time in Greece, got to see yep. the old stomping grounds of, of many of our contestants from season one. Uh, of course, delivered the golden goat to our season one winner. I will not name that winner right. here out of respect uh, to any listeners who have not yet completed season one who are <laughs> rushing forward. Yeah, who just jumped in that's right. on the holidays. I don't want to blow it. So you know who you are, but uh, that will not be revealed in this episode. So you're safe. Uh, But really, it was a delight to to see the country, to see places like Athens, Crete, where so many of of these gods lived and battled and loved, often at the same time in various (laughs) combinations. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Great, great food. Lovely people. Um, Really enjoyed it. And I I finally now appreciate why the ancient gods, despite the fact that they could essentially fly or teleport anywhere in the world, most Just of stayed right there. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty nice. So now I, I see the appeal. So it's the holiday season, Andrew. At this time of year, we're all busy wishing each other Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, joyous Kwanzaa, fecund Festivus, whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever denomination you follow. Uh, but we don't hear much about one holiday, and that is Saturnalia. Of oh, course, yeah. that is that was the major religious festival of the ancient Roman calendar. We're going to talk a little bit about it tonight. And when you think about it, there are some parallels, you know, to the, the holidays that we know so well. It is no, the, definitely. Of the year celebrated between the middle and the end of December. So a lot of parallels. 
So we figured at your fine suggestion, why not conduct a one-off competition between representatives of both the old and the new holidays, run them through our patented God versus God process, see who comes up on top. So therefore, an unprecedented matchup in episode 15, we have Saturn versus Santa. Santa, yeah. Yes. And I should point out, Many of you have got to be thinking, Matt, is Santa Claus really a god? Does, wow, he, well, does he qualify? We'll get to that. We'll get I'm to sure that. we will. Yeah. Uh, I do feel like at least now you're you're gonna you're gonna go deep on him, so I won't uh, I won't spoil any of the surprise. But at least from my perspective, I think he's got enough to qualify. At least you know for what is essentially an exhibition match tonight. Right. Right. Uh, you know he's been doing this for many years. He never ages, never slows down. He could very well be immortal for all we know. We don't have evidence right. to the contrary. Uh, like many of the Greco-Roman gods, he conducts unexpected experiments with animals. You know, Rudolph being a classic example. Teleports all over the world, is impervious to any home security system. Uh, and perhaps, at least to me most impressively, he has responsibilities to work one day a year. And for the other 364, gets all the others to do his work for him. And that, to me, seems pretty godlike. So you will go deep on him. But as right. always, we have gone to the fates as we always do, uh, we drew. I got Saturn, Andrew. You got Santa. So we will. I will begin with with Saturn and Saturnalia. Um, yeah. While the Golden Goat, you know, technically is not at stake any any longer, the winner will receive, right. I guess, an honorary golden apple. Uh, let's say for the occasion, golden mistletoe. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Done. Done. Approved. Uh, the winner will get bragging rights across all the festivals for the holiday season. Uh, anything you'd care to add before we uh, we dive in? Uh, no, I think uh, you've covered it well. I think that we are ready to go into these two beings and uh, yes. holidays and see uh, may the best one win. May the best being win. Yeah, we'll yeah. amend that this time. All right. Well, let's kick it off with Saturn. So Saturn, of course, the Roman god of, of many things, the capital itself of Rome, uh, time, wealth, agriculture, and then maybe most fittingly, the god of periodic renewal and liberation. So this time okay. of year, we all look for a chance to hit that proverbial reset button, start fresh, emerge right. free of the constraints of the past. And Saturn is there for us when we do. Now, once the Romans conquered Greece, of course, Saturn became conflated with the god Cronus from the Greek tradition. We've talked about him a little bit. Now, yeah. he was the titan who, at his mother's insistence, castrated his father, Uranus, with a scythe to take over, eventually becomes the father of many Olympians, including Zeus. So Cronus and Saturn became one and the same eventually. But right. for the purposes of this episode, we're going to stick to the Roman version of Saturn because he not only is the patron of Saturnalia, but his story does actually differ quite a bit from what right. we know about Cronus. He is the reason for the season. He, exactly, exactly. So uh, his name, the name of Saturn, derives from Satus, S-A-T-U-S, meaning sowing, that is sowing of of, of the crops okay, of, the, yeah, of right. the earth, not, uh, not right. clothing. Um, which makes sense, given his, his connection with agriculture and, and time. And as the god of time in Roman tradition, uh, Saturn is considered sated with years. He he compiles them, he takes them on. Uh, and he has this great hunger, which makes him insatiable. Oh. Of course, we know most about that hunger because of his hunger for his own newborn children. Yeah. And we will recall that he he devoured all of his children for fear they would overthrow him someday until Zeus, or Roman tradition would be Jupiter, was finally able to break the cycle through some shenanigans involving a stone, some castor oil. Now, thankfully, the Romans actually see some symbolism here. So they see it as just as time devours the courses of all seasons, so did the god of time gorge insatiably on his offspring. 
So there's kind of a symbolic reason for that, that the Romans had. Uh, and I kind of found that strangely comforting. So, you know, unlike Cronus, Saturn wasn't simply motivated by, you know, paranoia of getting taken over or right. some kind of weird culinary fixation on the delicate flavor of <laughs> newborn infants. Right. Uh, no, it was a higher symbolic meaning about, about the change of seasons. And of course, he's, he's associated as well with farming and the seasons changed there. So it makes a lot of sense. It all fits together in the Roman tradition. Um, one extension of that, of that agriculture connection, Saturn also carries the epithet Strachulius, which derives from Strichus, which means dung or manure, <laughs> which was a little surprising to me yeah. for, a, for a very important uh, influential deity who essentially controls time in the harvest. His formal nickname connects him with excrement. So <laughs> I'm sure that was, that was delivered out of love uh, back then. Um, so we know we see Saturn as depicted carrying like a sickle or a scythe. That's the big curvy knife that you right. may recognize from the Soviet flag and other other areas. So it carries two meanings for Saturn. First, of course, it represents the harvest. It's a tool for for harvesting. And secondly, it is the implement that he used to castrate his father. So ah. nice double meaning there. It's a real, yeah, right. real multi-purpose tool for, for Saturn that tells his subjects, you know, it's important to reap and sow the earth. And also, I wasn't afraid to use this thing on <laughs> dear old dad. So think twice before coming at me. Sure. And the Temple of Saturn was right there in the Roman Forum, very prominently placed, and the home of the state treasury, since Saturn was the god of wealth. So very logical that all the booty of the Roman Empire would be stored yeah. right there under his auspices. So normally we go into the origin story. Uh, we kind of know that from past uh, tales of Cronus, so it's really sure. more about what happens at the end of that uh, that original story arc. And there are multiple Telling so, so this is more of an epilogue, sort of. Yeah, exactly. Or well, you'll find out it is in fact okay. just the beginning of a second act. All right, the ends right. for some, but the beginnings for others. So okay, in that Greek tradition we talked about, where Cronus is is the hero, Zeus causes his father to disgorge these older siblings he's eaten, and then as punishment, casts him to Tartarus to live in isolation and darkness for going through all that. Uh, there are some tellings that have Zeus uh, actually castrating his father in punishment, the way his father did to his father, continuing the, the family tradition. <laughs> yeah. uh, but proud, even the historians proud. eventually just sort of tired of that and repudiated and said, no, we're not going to keep that in the books. Okay. The Roman tale, though, of Saturn is a very different story. So after, instead of sending his father into exile, uh, Jupiter actually sends, sends Saturn not to hell, but to Italy, which yeah, to me sounds much better. Much, much better. better. You know, that's yeah. an improvement. Uh, so he is exiled there. In punishment, he is he's seen as dethroned, fugitive. But to his credit, Saturn, in a tremendous second act, uh, really does find a home there. He he gets to know the Romans. So these are ancient, ancient Romans, way back right. then. Um, he brings architecture and civilization to them. And in their appreciation, they have a local god, uh, the two-faced Janus, only in, oh, yeah, only in right. the Roman tradition. Uh, he's the god of transitions sees the power that that, that uh, Saturn is bringing to Rome. And so awards Saturn with a share of the kingdom. And in fact, Saturn becomes essentially the king of, of Italy. Um, and to, to amass power, he pulls together this very unlikely coalition. As Virgil puts it, uh, he gathered together the unruly race of fawns and nymphs scattered over mountain heights, gave them laws, and under his reign were the golden ages men tell of. In such perfect peace, he ruled the nations. So that period where Saturn was in charge becomes known as the golden age of man. Oh. And so this is what essentially all of ancient history look back on as, as the good old days. We're talking about man and nature in perfect harmony. And nobody ever had to work because the earth would somehow just produce 
the fruits of sustenance that required right. no labor. Uh, the way Virgil describes it, fields knew no taming hand of husbandman to mark the plain or meet with boundary line. Even this was impious, for the common stock they gathered in the earth of her own will, all things more freely, no man bidding, bore. So Mother Earth is just given it away. No yeah, need just, for any kind of work. Boom, Beautiful. coming up. So no need to plow the field. You don't even have to mark off whose land is whose. Everybody gets along. Yeah. Now, this does not last forever, as you can probably guess. Uh, later on, no, no. after the reign of Saturn, the Golden Age eventually ends when Prometheus brings the gift of fire to humans. Eventually, that, of course, as we've talked about at length, leads to the punishment, sending Pandora in her box, containing all manners of evil into the world. And once that evil is set free, the Golden Age is no more. Yeah. But it was really nice while it lasted. So yeah, I think Ovid, uh, in his Metamorphoses, sums it up best. Looking back at the period, he says, the Golden Age was first when man yet knew, no rule but uncorrupted reason knew, and with a native bent did good pursue. Unforced by punishment, unawed by fear, his words were simple and his soul sincere. Needless was written law where none oppressed. The law of man was written in his breast. I mean, it sounds great. Everybody yeah. is reasonable. Everybody pursues good. Everybody speaks simply and clearly. Uh, and because everybody obeyed the law, not only was the world peaceful, it was entirely free of lawyers. <laughs> wow. what, a, what a time to be alive. So yeah, good excellent. on Saturn for pulling that pulling that comeback off. And and that's a good run. Yeah. It brings it brings to mind another classic God versus God mixed bag. So, you know, sure, you yeah, castrated your father and ate your children, but in the end, you ruled over this wonderful period yeah. of history. So there was a good comeback there. I, I, I can't help but think of Bill Clinton in the 90s. Highly unconventional family life, but, you know, mm. at the same time, great economy, surplus of the budget, yeah. you know, a lot, lot, lot of good with the bad. <laughs> Which leads us to Saturnalia. So the Golden Age is kind of his big legacy. Yeah. Uh, and then centuries after it's over, the Romans really pined for those good old days. You know, that was a simpler time when life was innocent, when it was easier. So they created Saturnalia this festival in order to recreate those, those conditions of the golden age in, in honor of Saturn, who, who oversaw it. So they, they had it in time. They timed it in December. So it was, it was intentional with, with Saturn being connected as the God of harvest. So at that point in December, all the hard work of farming is done. The autumn planting is complete. Right. Uh, days are, are, days have been short. They're about to start getting longer. So it's, it's time to celebrate. So at first Saturnalia was just a single day, uh, but by the late Republic, we're talking 130-ish BC, the Romans were enjoying it so much, they said, let's expand it. Let's make it a full week starting on December nice. 17th. Yes. And when they when they call the holiday, they took it very seriously. So all the schools and courts are closed. All the regular social schedules suspended. People would decorate their homes. They would bring out wreaths and other greenery. A nod to Saturn and the, and the harvest, but of course, right. beginning traditions that we'll see a little later. And for one glorious week, everybody just pretends the golden age is back. And 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 because that time was so just, you know, there, everybody was equal. There were no slaves. Unfortunately, at this point in history, there were. Yeah, um, but <laughs> during are. Saturnalia, uh, everybody was equal. So the yeah. enslaved and the master got to sit together at the at the festival, at the entertainments, the ceremonies, the gladiator battles, all sitting amongst each other, all classes, all all ranks, the enslaved and the owners all together. At the banquets. They would even even dine together, which would never happen otherwise. In some tellings, the slave would actually sit at the head of the table, and the master would come and actually offer table service for dinner. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. But then I realized I shouldn't get too excited because by most accounts, the slave still had to make the food. 
Um, but at least the masters were, were, were doing the waiting on the yes, table. Was ceremonial. It? It wasn't, yeah. That's right. That's right. But it was, yeah. it was a powerful ceremony. Uh, and then laws and norms were relaxed. So the, the writer Lucian called Saturnalia a festive season where it is lawful to be drunken and slaves have license to revile their lords, which, I mean, talk about freedom. Not only can you have equal footing to, I guess, the equivalent of, of your boss, but you can be open about how much you can't stand them. You can really right. give it to them. And there's no punishment. So, I mean, very, very liberating. It was a, a early form of free speech that the poet Horace referred to as December Liberty. It just okay. Get, get some good old December Liberty get you, going. Get your Tell December them, Liberty on. That's yeah. right. Uh, now, they could do this because, of course, Saturnalia was temporary. It was always going to be a week. It was going to end. Right. The norms would not change beyond the festival itself. So even even in those in those seven days, the the the, the people everybody in charge, knew. everybody yeah. knew it was temporary. So they were they were they were able to do it. Uh, it affected clothing. So instead of your typical Roman toga, everybody would dress in these Greek like outfits known as a synthesis, more like a tunic, this very colorful attire. Otherwise, it would be distasteful to wear something like this during the day, uh, more okay. like night night clothes. But for Saturnalia, it was like a big week long. Walking around in your pajamas. That's it. It was a big, big old pajama party for a week. Yeah. Um, there were there were hats involved. So normally folks who were enslaved would 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 go bareheaded, but there was a special leather cap known as a pileus, and only freed right. slaves could wear it. But that week everybody could wear one. So bust out the pileuses for everybody. Uh, and there was equality for men and women. So females were able to to mingle more freely socially than they would be normally be able to. There were women entertainers, role-playing, disguises. And when I say entertainers, we're not talking like stand-up sets. You know, they're not doing like a tight ten at the Laugh Factory. They're doing like yeah. gladiator battles. Okay. In front of audiences, and people were loving it. Uh, apparently, Cicero <laughs> did not love it. He had a problem yeah. with it. He thought it was, it was unserious and distracting. Uh, but as far as I could tell, everybody else seemed to like it. Right. Um, for some reason, also dwarves would hunt cranes during the holiday. Okay. Yeah, sure. I have no further information on this. <laughs> I, no, that makes sense. <laughs> I guess they just needed something special to do. Um, Cicero had no opinion on the matter, but apparently dwarves and cranes were a thing. Uh, gambling was also a big deal. So normally in, in ancient Rome, playing dice was, was frowned upon. But during the festival, you could do it. Slaves yeah. would gamble right with their masters. Uh, normally the streets of Rome were dark and dangerous at night. But during that week, it was lit with torches. So people were out all night. And drinking heavily, uh, drunkenness, overeating, sober, sober people, they say were few. So kind of a like early sort of Las Vegas or, or a bourbon street yeah, kind of vibe yeah, right. day and night, uh, not entirely absent. I should say the, the sobriety, some in the Roman intelligentsia would gather sort of in small groups in the bathhouse and they would spend the time posing difficult questions to one another about the ancient poets, which seems like an odd yeah, way to celebrate. If nobody could answer a question. There would be a crown of laurel that would that would be dedicated to Saturn. So it was sort of like the early sort of proto version of pub trivia that they were doing <laughs> in the bathhouse instead. Yeah. Um, also gift giving. So they were there was there was a tradition, but it was all in in the spirit of modesty. So you had to give something that was very small. If you were to give an expensive gift to your friend, that would mark your social status. It would, that goes against the spirit of equality for Saturnalia. So little things, pottery, little wax figurines. Right. Some gifts specific to that day. So so many believe that the gag gift was actually invented for Saturnalia way back when. Okay. A uh, quick rundown of the kinds of gifts you could expect from uh, the poet at the time, Marshall. Writing tablets, dice, knuckle bones, whatever those are. 
Money boxes, combs, toothpicks, hat, hunting knife, an axe, lamps, balls, perfumes, pipes, a pig, which seems a bit much. Yeah. A sausage. Small that's pig. a little better. Uh, parrot, tables, cups, spoons, items of clothing, statues, masks, books, and pets. So very modest. Uh, but yeah. everybody was expected to give a gift to everybody they knew. You know, so it was the equivalent of like okay. Valentine's Day at grade school. You know, whether you like them or not, <laughs> you kind of have to do it. And people keep right. track to make sure that you are consistent with it. So the lower the value of your gift, the stronger that symbolizes your friendship to be. Uh, in fact, for those who didn't have much money, who had bosses, whether they were, you know, the heads of syndicates or whatever, they would actually give their employees gratuities to help them buy gifts for their friends. So it was even kind oh, okay. of trickle down economics to make sure everybody had uh, the funds to buy little gifts. Oftentimes, those gifts are also accompanied by verses. So like little, like, like akin to today's greeting cards, you'd, write, you'd give the gift and you'd, write, you'd recite a little poem. Um, all leading up to the last day of Saturnalia, where the Romans would give their friends and loved ones these little terracotta figurines called Signalaria, which some believe, and this surprised me, was a callback to the, the old days, the really old days, where they did human sacrifices in kind of this time of year. And you have to believe they were feeling pretty good about themselves at this point. Like, look at us now, just a couple thousand years later, and we've gone from human sacrifice to exchanging modest little figurines. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then yeah, come a long way. Uh, oddly enough, there's a good reason for this confusion. So very ancient Roman prophecy told the earliest inhabitants of Latinum, which we know is, is Italy today, sure. that they should send heads to Hades and send Fota to Saturn. Now, the ancient Latins interpret Foda to mean human sacrifices, and so they followed through on that. But yeah, centuries well. later, legend has it, Hercules got involved and suggested, why don't we dedicate lights instead? Light some candles. Oh, yeah. Because the root word phos can either mean light or man, depending on your regional accent. <laughs> so quite a policy uh, shift. Yeah. Uh, but probably a good one. So I, I give I give Hercules some bonus points for intervening there, sort of, hey, how about we cool it with the human sacrifice? Just light some right. candles instead. And so that's where it's taken us today. So uh, one other little tradition. So people would be out and about. Then they would kind of gather in homes for their private parties throughout the night. And it was traditional to have a king of the Saturnalia, a master of ceremonies yeah. that was appointed kind of by random by lot um, in these parties. And in the spirit of equality, it's usually a slave or a child. It's usually sort of a, somebody without a whole lot of social status or power gets to become the king of the festival. And the job of the king of Saturnalia was to, essentially just to create chaos, just to make it even crazier. So if you were the king, you could shout commands. You would shout things like, you have to have a drink. You have to sing a song naked. Hey, that guy, throw him in cold water. Whatever you said, the guests had to obey. They had to do it. So late December has these connections as well to the solstice, the candles that symbolize, you know, quest for, for knowledge and truth. And, and later in the Roman empire, after they've had Saturnalia for a while, uh, they, they also encompass the coming of the new year in their, in their sort of lunar calendar. They call it the solstice, the birthday of the unconquerable sun. And that right. is held on December 25th. So yes, that tees up that important date that will yes, become crucial in the Julian calendar. So, you can see, Andrew, the appeal of Saturnalia to the Romans. Lot, lot to like during this yeah. wild and crazy week. And so, not surprisingly, they really wanted it to last forever. Um, the poet of the time, Statius, wrote on the subject during the festivities. He was writing this in real time. Who can sing of the spectacle, the unrestrained mirth, the banqueting, the unbought feast, the lavish streams of wine? Ah, now I faint, and drunken with thy liquor, drag myself at last to sleep. Now, I'm going to pause the quote there to note 
But Statius is admittedly hammered while he's writing this. So <laughs> it's, it could very well be history's first instance of drunk texting. Um, but he continues before his, his head hits the pillow. For how many years shall this festival abide? Never shall age destroy so holy a day. While the hills of Latium remained and fought, remain and Father Tiber, while thy Rome stands and the capital thou hast restored to the world, it shall continue. So as long as all those things are still in place, we're going to have Saturday night. Well, those are a lot of caveats. And as you well know, <laughs> those things were not in place forever. Yeah. And sadly, Saturday night did not last uh, forever. But on the plus side, it did take a long time to die. So the wind down begins after the Second Punic War. The defeats by Carthage, they incorporate some of the Greek style elements into the festival. So they kind of bring in some of their Greek sacrifices there's a sort of shouted motto that, that comes in where they where they 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 shout the phrase Io Saturnalia and just the yeah. word Io. And people would, would shout it in the street all throughout the week, just Io Saturnalia. And it could be a punchline, it could be tribute to Bacchus, it could be punctuating a joke. Uh, that was the catchphrase at the time. So Saturnalia was popular in the third and fourth centuries AD. It's getting a good run together, but sure enough, once the Roman Empire became ruled by Christians. They wanted to disband the holiday, but instead, yep. I think in, in a pretty savvy way, they kind of borrowed from it to create Christmas and the new year that we know today. So credit to Pope Julius I, who declared that Christ's birth would be celebrated on December 25th to create a Christian alternative to Saturnalia. So pretty good thinking here. The Pope's like, you know, you're going to be doing this already. You have this big thing. Why don't we just do it our way a little bit? So almost right. the sort of early version of marketing that says, let's reappropriate your thing for our thing. So, right. so as a result, for many hundreds of years after that, Christmas really bears a pretty close resemblance to Saturnalia. So you still have, at least in, in Europe, you still have the drinking, the gambling, the gluttony under the auspices of Christmas. Um, you would have just slight variations. There'd be a boy who was like a bishop for a day. You'd have clergy would wear masks and, and dress in women's clothing. All the way up to the Renaissance, you had the Lord of Misrule uh, as the sort of equivalent of, of the king of the king of Saturnalia. Um, the poor would go to the rich and demand their best food and drink, and if they failed to comply, they would they would threaten mischief, which almost gives you little shades of, of early Halloween there. At least back yeah. when, you know, in Halloween, people really did shake down and terrorize people. Back when it had some teeth, <laughs> uh, early early elements of that, and of course, once the Puritans showed up. Then they banned the Lord of Misrule in England. As always, they were no fun. We'll hear a lot more about the Puritans. I look forward to it. And so by the mid-19th century, you've got you've got some do-gooders, including Charles Dickens, who essentially undertook a Christmas revival that sort of championed this much less wild, more sort of family-friendly version of Christmas. You strip away all the sort of raucous elements, get to, you know, keep the gift giving, the lighting of candles. So much less fun, at least in my view, to, uh, than Saturnalia, but much closer to what we recognize today. So in a way, as so often happens, as we and I have discussed so many times, you know, over time, society really does sort of just strip out all the fun parts, leave us with the more sanitized, safe, lame bits in this case for Christmas. And the more I was researching this in preparation, I found myself kind of tempted to bring back some of that old Saturnalia spirit, you know, start, you know, even at, at Christmas, I, I would I would start shouting out outlandish commands at Christmas dinner. I'd start <laughs> shouting Io Saturnalia and such. But it occurred to me, for those of us who who are able to work from home, we essentially had our own revival of Saturnalia during the COVID lockdown of 2020. Because you think about it, all of a sudden we're kind of on equal footing with our bosses. Mm -hmm. We're wearing our night clothes during the day, and we're eating and drinking excessively. 
Uh, and above it all, there's this childlike Lord of Misrule who's sowing chaos and <laughs> issuing ridiculous commands all the while. So not out of the question, not nearly as fun, I think, our version uh, than the original, but a striking parallel nonetheless. And, and at least the Romans had the good sense to end Saturnalia after a week, uh, whereas our experiment is uh, continuing on in some ways three years later and, and going nowhere. So in conclusion, I, I think we should look back fondly on old Saturn. I think it's a great example of rehabilitating his reputation after some dark early days of being, you know, a castrator of fathers, eater yeah. of children into the ruler of the golden age of man and, and ultimately the namesake of this wild and crazy festival designed to recreate that wonderful period. And that is, that is Saturn. And that is uh, his representation of Saturnalia. Excellent. So I, I learned a lot. I didn't know any of this stuff. You <laughs> seem to have uh, some of those details that you're disposing when we were talking about this, yeah. but this is fascinating how, uh, not only how wild it was, but uh, how much of it does remain intact right. in certain small ways. All right, that's excellent. Well, we'll hear about uh, the evolution, and I think we'll dovetail kind of in the same place in the end. Yes. Uh, and good. then we'll go into our rounds. Awesome. Well, let's take a breather. I'm going to hit this uh, mulled wine in <laughs> earnest, and uh, we'll be back right after the break. All right. And for this special holiday episode, I, of course, have Santa Claus, as he's known in the American tradition, also known as St. Nick, mm. Father Christmas, the Jolly Old Elf, or Kris Kringle. Yes. But so he goes by many names, but by any of those, uh, he's probably a familiar figure to most of our listeners uh, in the English-speaking world, at least in his modern form. But we're going to take it a little bit further back at some of the origins. So if these were proper Greco-Roman times, he would be the god of presence, the god of winter merriment, the god of moral behavior, hmm. patron god of children, and uh, maybe the god of commercialization also. So, <laughs> yes, for sure. He's definitely a magical being, someone who has extraordinary abilities, and as you discussed, Matt, by all appearances, is immortal. Right. So Santa is a figure that we think deserves the full God versus God treatment, especially uh, during this holiday season. Absolutely. Now we'll get better. We'll get into whether the term God applies properly to Santa later. Uh, luckily, some of our Canadian academic friends have been have been studying this very closely, being much closer to the North Pole than we are. So <laughs> neighborly, yeah. They got some papers out on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Santa is generally pictured as an older man with a white beard, heavy set, you know, usually wearing a red coat and a white fur trim. I don't know if you can picture that, Matt. I, mind's eye. If I close my eyes and, and, and think of a Coca-Cola ad, I think I can do it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So in terms of etymology, uh, Santa Claus comes from the New York State Dutch community in the colonial era via the anglicized version of their Sinterklaas for St. Nicholas, who was, of course, the patron saint of children. And we have references to Sint-a-Claus in the New York media starting in the 1770s. Hmm. So that's the first time we actually get Sint-a-Claus, which becomes Santa Claus. 
So Santa Claus was again very much Saint Nicholas, but the images of Santa Claus, as I think you mentioned, were more of a flamboyant bishop. He did have a white beard, hmm. but he had a bishop's hat and both hands just full of ruby rings. So, so a yeah. man of faith, but but practicing it in a rather gaudy manner. Yes, uh, he he he's a he's a fan. Fancy bishop. <laughs> and in the, the Dutch tradition, Sinterklaas visited not on Christmas, but during the Feast of St. Nicholas, right. which was on December 6th, uh, to deliver toys and treats to good children and the rod to bad ones. Yeah. You, you don't hear much about the rod anymore, but uh, I, no, I do recall no. there being a, a darker side to the original judgment. Yes. Yes, as, we, as we'll see. Um, and he still, in fact, comes on December 6th to many Dutch households hmm. to this day. So he's not doing all of his work on one day. He's got a little bit of a split, but I think, you know, to manage load management, uh, he does, he does. <laughs> he, he would do great in the NBA. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so who was St. Nicholas and why was he putting gifts in little Dutch kids, little wooden shoes in the 17th century? Yeah. Well, St. Nicholas, the original was actually a Greek Christian bishop in the Roman Empire, kind of right as the empire was converting over to Christianity, and he lived in what is now Turkey. Uh, so Nicholas was a bishop in this coastal town, and in Bishop Nicholas' congregation, apparently, there was a poor man who had three daughters. So the man was so poor, he had no money for a dowry. Hmm. And therefore, in their system... Uh, the girls could not get married and would have to become prostitutes. Oh, my goodness. So it's That's a terrible system. Harsh. Yeah. Harsh, misogynistic. Yeah. Not a lot of gray area. No. And, you know, to 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 his credit, uh, Nicholas wants to help the family out. Hmm. Not so much one for systematic change, but he does want to help this family out. So he goes and he finds some money somewhere. Uh, you know, may, maybe he dips into the collection plate, uh, takes the money out. We don't know. Uh, but in any case, uh, he surreptitiously reaches through the window of this family and leaves some money in the shoes of each of these girls, enough that the three can get married and don't have to live a life of prostitution. What a guy. So, of course, the question arises, how do we know uh, 1,700 years later that he did this secret <laughs> act of charity? <laughs> yes. Not, not really clear. You know, maybe... Maybe the diocese accountant noticed the missing money right. and uh, Nicholas had to come clean or uh, maybe he just wasn't quite so secret mm. as the story makes out. Right. But in any case, an important footwear related gift giving precedent <laughs> has been set. Yes. We're still living with and enjoying today. <laughs> so, you know, there's a general sense again that Nicholas liked kids and was generous to them. Um, and according to some accounts, at least, uh, at one point, Nicholas discovers that a butcher in his area has killed three children hmm. and chopped them up and put them either in a salt barrel to save for later or is actively cooking them in a stew. My goodness. So Nicholas finds out about this. Uh, and it's seven years later. So the children, I guess, are, are some of parts of the children are in the salt barrel. And he comes out against it. He takes a bold stance <laughs> against the killing. Hard line. Yeah. Of children. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, and he asks people to gather up 
all the pieces of the kids that they could find. And if there's any good in any piece of the kid, he would restore them back to life in full form. Wow. So, and this works. At least two out of the three kids, they found some good in them and they were brought back. So third one. I don't know about the third. No such luck. (laughs) (laughs) Rotten kid. If you look hard enough, you can find the good, I suppose, in uh, almost any child. Almost any child, yeah. Uh, and that's part of the message uh, of, of of that story, apparently. So, but we can start to see his application of moral judgment element that's right. going to uh, carry through to Santa Claus, of course. So, interestingly, uh, not only does Bishop Nicholas not punish the butcher, he apparently decides, and he, he likes the way this man cuts a jib. Mm-hmm. So he makes him his servant and companion, immortal companion for the rest of his days. And is still <laughs> My goodness. to this day uh servant and, and he is uh the one who comes out for the bad children is the butcher. So he becomes a, also an employee to, to yes, meet an employee. out punishment. He, he, yeah. He is a sir so he says, Yeah, I like the way this man cuts a jib. <laughs> and and he employs him for the for and makes him inter and makes him uh, immortal. I can't imagine that those two children who were reconstituted uh, after being cut up by this butcher <laughs> were too thrilled with that arrangement, but I'm sure there's not a lot written on that. Yeah, they were not consulted, probably. <laughs> uh, so, you know, those are the highlights we kind of know about, about his life. Not a lot. Um, mm. You know, the process of beatification, mm. uh, which is sort of a, a saintly apotheosis, uh, was a little loosey-goosey back then. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of details don't know much about it. And then we kind of get like a yada, yada, yada. 1,000 years later, there's a fe- <laughs> feast of St. Nicholas in most of in most of Europe. So, that, that, so that's what happens. Um, now, in the Dutch, German, Nordic uh, countries, uh, the Feast of St. Nicholas uh, did add some decidedly non-ecclesiastic elements uh, to the mix, uh, which some folklorists, such as Jacob Grimm, uh, notice had strong parallels to Odin's Wild Hunt, a character we've not talked about a lot. No, or but of course in the Nordic tradition, yes, is their king of the gods. Uh, and so those innovations uh, include giving Saint Nicholas a flying white horse mm-hmm. or wagon, yeah, which is something that Odin had, and uh, giving him a switch to deal with the bad kids or this hench figure. Uh, <laughs> possibly the butcher uh, for the same purpose. Um, and also Odin had his ravens would go to people's chimneys mm. and listen at the chimneys to determine if the family deserved treats or punishment. So, mm-hmm. uh, so like a really surveillance uh, program there with the, with the, the birds. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's the way Bummer. he did. It. And, and I, we'll see that Santa Claus has taken it even further in his day. Mm. So, uh, now, the other mythic figure who's going to contribute to our understanding of Santa Claus and what he is today is Father Christmas. Mm-hmm. Now, Father Christmas was actually a separate personification of the spirit of Christmas and merriment from English folklore. Okay. And so while Santa Claus is concerned with the kids and their behavior, Father Christmas is not. He is your good time uncle. <laughs> not concerned about good time about the kids at all and 
I will say that this aspect of Santa is arguably the one that's going to get him in the most trouble. Hmm. So we have uh, surviving written references uh, to the English Father Christmas dating back to the 1400s, at least. So it goes back a little ways. Um, but there's significant overlap, again, between Father Christmas and a couple of English pagan precursors. There is a King Winter, who is a figure in a pointed cap and cloak, who was invited into the home in Anglo-Saxon times for a ceremonial feast seeking the favor of the winter season. Mm. And of course, via the Viking raiders up in the north, again, we have Odin, who visited in his hooded Yuletide character form. Mm. And of course, that is one of the names we have still of of Christmas. And he would listen to his people and deliver gifts to people who he deemed needy or worthy. But uh, Father Christmas also had a couple other titles. Uh, he was sometimes called Lord Christmas hmm. or Captain Christmas. Is that right? Or, or <laughs> Sir Christmas. Okay. So, but whatever the honorific, he was uh, consistently a figure of revelry and celebration. Uh, so much so that in 1572, Father Christmas and his Yule Parade uh, were banned in the city of York oh. by the Archbishop of the same. Uh, banned for being too raucous and for pulling people away from good Christian worship. Mm. So, uh, however, that was just the start of the legal trouble for Father Christmas <laughs> and his followers. Okay. Because as you foreshadowed, this is the rise of the Puritans in yes. England. Yes. And New England, of course, as well, where I am now. <laughs> and they did not like Father Christmas. They did not like St. Nicholas. No. They didn't like the Catholic saints. They didn't like those pagany vibes. <laughs> and most of all, they did not like Christmas. No. So, of course, Father Christmas does have his, his defenders. Uh, the play, English playwright Ben Johnson, for example, uh, wrote a Christmas play about Father Christmas visiting the court of King James I. Mm. And in that... Father Christmas has to make the case that he should be let into the court along with what are called his 10 children, hmm. which we'd never uh, heard about before. But he, he had in that play 10 children, which maybe we later will find out are elves. Hmm. But at that time, they were styled as children. Uh, and one of them was named Misrule. He had one named Carol, C-A-R-O-L. Uh, one named Mince Pie, <laughs> and, and one named Baby Cake. So, it's the, quite the uh, quite the naming convention he's got going there. Yeah, quite quite the naming convention. It makes a little more sense if they're elves and that's their job titles, right? Maybe Ben Johnson didn't understand what was going on, <laughs> but uh, he at least thought thought that he had some kids. So, uh, so this becomes a huge political flashpoint during the English Civil War in the middle of the 17th century, uh, with the royals being on the side of Father Christmas and Christmas itself, and the Puritanical par Parliament being against it. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's possible that there were some other issues involved around taxation or something, but <laughs> in my readings, <laughs> what I read, the gist of it was 
uh, whether or not we're going to have Christmas. Fun versus no fun. Yes. Yes. Uh, so initially, at least, Captain Christmas <laughs> and uh, King Charles, the son of King James, King Charles the first. Yes. Are, are no match for Oliver Cromwell and his new model army. Right. And so in 1645, uh, the Puritan Parliament of English, England, four years uh, before they were able to dispatch with the head of King Charles the first, banned the celebration of Christmas throughout all of England mm. and made it just another work day. Wow. There were no church services. There's no day off for Bob Cratchit. <laughs> You know, so yes, listeners, there was a war on Christmas. <laughs> That's right, but it was a long time ago. But it was the Puritans who prosecuted it. Okay. So eventually, as they as they always do, everyone tires of the Puritans and uh, the protectorate that they had, and they invite Father Christmas and King Charles the first son. Because of course King Charles uh, is is no longer right uh, able to perform his duties. <laughs> no, he is not. <laughs> <laughs> so they invite the son back to England. Uh, you know, so unlike his his friend the king, Santa did manage to survive mm -hmm. uh, the Puritan rule, but only just because we get a story of the trial of Father Christmas uh, from this time. So, you know, these are like transcripts. The 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 story we get, and it's hard to know how literally to take them, but I do mm. think it captures uh, the gist of the debate. Uh, so essentially, at that time, Father Christmas was put on trial by the town of superstition for in, for inciting drunkenness, mm. gluttony, gaming, wantonness, cursing, vice, and idleness. So it's a long list. Yeah. A long list of crimes. Uh, trial goes forward forward and father christmas gets the first jury thrown out as a bunch of misers mm. so these are all a bunch of misers and therefore they are enemies of mine and and i need them to have thrown out so they're thrown out and we get a, a fair jury put in place and the defense that father christmas gives us is you know basically all the good stuff about christmas that's me that's the stuff that i do <laughs> Any excesses of drinking or gambling or fighting, well, that's not my fault. No, can't that's be just people, people taking advantage of the holiday to do things they were going to do. Anyway. That's right. Yep. Yep. And that works, of course. Yeah. Father Christmas is acquitted. And the jury's saying that getting rid of Christmas because of a few excesses would be, quote, as if a church should be pulled down because a pocket hath been picked in it. <laughs> so. Good you know, analogy, yeah, yeah, you can't powerful, hold, can't hold them accountable for that. So, the monarchy is back in charge, Christmas is saved in England. Uh, now, this wasn't just England, there had been some similar issues in uh Holland or the Netherlands at this time, though, without an actual war. Uh, but some Calvinist reformers who were anti Christmas, right? Uh, you know, and so that may have been what spurred Santa to visit the new world. Staying clear of New England, of <laughs> course, uh, as one should. Um, because according to the writer and folklorist Washington Irving, it is Santa Claus who comes around this time and helps found the city of New Amsterdam, mm. which would, of course, later become New York City. 
Right. So according to Irving, uh, there's a Dutch ship that had a figurehead on the front of it of St. Nicholas, and it came over to North America. And the night before they landed, uh, there's the sage uh, on board named Olaf. And Olaf uh, has a dream where he's visited by Santa. And in this dream, Santa takes out his pipe and he begins to smoke and produces this large volume of smoke that's spread out over the entire land. So Olaf climbs a tree uh, to see this spread out smoke. And via Irving, we hear that the great volume of smoke assumed a variety of marvelous forms, where in dim obscurity he saw shadowed out palaces and domes and lofty spires, all which lasted but a moment and then faded away until the whole rolled off and nothing but green woods were left. So this vision of smoke tells the Dutch crew where to found their city. It's a vision of what New York is going to become Wow. That rolls out in San- out of Santa's pipe. Huh. I said, "All right, let's let's put our 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 fort there." And so, without Santa's help, the Dutch may have founded their city in Staten Island <laughs> or New Jersey, yeah, or, or Brooklyn. Yeah, just but no, they 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 got right to the heart of it to Manhattan. Uh, so, according to Irving, uh, this is kind of a golden age of sorts for Santa mm. Claus. Uh, and he visited New Amsterdam often, coming on every holiday. Uh, and Irving writes, The sylvan days of New Amsterdam, the good St. Nicholas would often make his appearance in his beloved city of a holiday afternoon, riding jollily among the treetops or over the roofs of the houses, now and then drawing forth magnificent presents from his breeches and dropping them down chimneys of his favorites. Whereas in these degenerate days of iron and brass, he never shows the light of his countenance, nor ever visits us save one night a year, confining his presence merely to the children in token to the degeneracy of the parents. Mm. So a lot of info packed into that paragraph. <laughs> yeah, there is. Santa is taking presents out of his pants and throwing them down the chimney. Right. right. So he de- he doesn't have the whole thing kind of worked out. I imagine there's a lot of breakage. <laughs> yes. That he has to account for right. with that method. Uh, but he's coming during the daytime. Mm. Everybody can see him. He he's a he's a uh you know well known figure. Mm-hmm. Um but again, this is kind of a soul, a golden age uh for Santa Claus. And Irving's work, though, uh, which is around 1809 brings forth a whole new wave of interest in Santa Claus and writing about Santa Claus and songs of praise about Santa Claus and veneration. So, as I said, you know, these aspects of Sinterklaas and Father Christmas start to come together in Santa Claus is the mixing of Dutch and English settlers in New York City. Mm. Uh, so, in the years after Irving's story, more poems appeared about Santa in New York and really starts to become the recognizable figure that we know and love today. Uh, in 1823, a light sleeping New York City man named Clement Moore uh, was awoken by Santa Claus's reindeer uh, during Christmas Eve visit. So Moore runs to the window to see what's happening. And he later writes about it in a poem because he's just classy like that. <laughs> so, and, and this is one of the first writings uh, we get about the reindeer. So now at some point he's traded in the horse for the reindeer. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and more rights. Then what, to my wondering eyes, did appear? But a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer with a little old driver so lively and quick that I knew in a moment he must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. So very interesting stuff here about Santa Claus's size or ability to change sizes, which we don't often hear about as much anymore. But no, we know yeah, that um, you know, explains. I'm sure it's very helpful with the chimneys. Yes. Um, we get the individual names of the reindeer for the first time. And the sighting, again, sets up Santa's modern form and firmly establishes his place in the Christmas holiday. There's also an explosion of uh, Santa lore after this. And we move from a situation where we have very scarce records to really where we have too many mm. uh, records. And it's hard to sift through them to determine, you know, what's canon and what's not. Right. Um, you know, we, we find out about the North Pole uh, right about this time, a couple of years later. And of course, that kind of makes sense. Uh, the North Pole is a much more secure location. Yes. Uh, especially after the trauma of the English Civil War experience. <laughs> yes, you need to you know, cool your heels for a while in some uh, northern territories. Yeah, not a lot of Puritans up there. No. So, Thank goodness. Uh, so you know, makes also probably made economic sense, uh, cheaper than than rents probably would have been in New York City. Yes. At that time. time. And so assume he got some tax incentives, uh, you know, maybe had some non-union workforce available up there. <laughs> for sure. So, uh, but, you know, the most famous story about life in Santa's workshop probably is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Mm -hmm. uh, and we get additional in that story about that ninth reindeer, Rudolph. Uh, so I think that's definitely canonical Santa mythology mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah. Uh, even though Santa's a bit of a side character, really, in that story, as the focus is on Rudolph and his elf friend with an obsessive interest in dentistry. <laughs> yes. Uh, but we do find out that Santa runs a tight ship up there. Uh, he's got a stern four elf who oversees the whole shop. And uh, there's actually some pretty conformist vibes hmm. up in Santa's workshop, especially among those talking reindeer. Yeah. Uh, that we hear about. Uh but we do also find out later that Santa does still come among us in his mortal guise. Uh, in fact, one of the better known modern Santa myths about him doing that is from the classic film Miracle on 34th Street, mm -hmm. uh, which you may have heard of. So in that telling, uh, Santa was spending some time back in his old stomping ground of New York City. Right. You know, which is what I began with. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's disguised under the extremely clever alias of Chris Kringle. <laughs> Subtle. Yeah. So, the, yeah. And, and by the way, the etymology on Chris Kringle is kind of interesting uh, because what Chris Kringle really comes from Christ child. Hmm. And so there was an earlier reform effort uh, by the Lutherans in, uh, in uh, Germany, actually to write Santa out of the holiday entirely. And so they say it's not, uh, Santa, who is delivering it, it is the Christ child who is bringing you these presents. But the peasants weren't having it. They just said, no. yeah, no, that's just another nickname for Santa Claus. That's right. Uh, or St. Nicholas. Uh, so they kept their holiday favorite. And he adopted that just as, oh, that's another nickname for me. <laughs> 
So anyway, he's a, he's using this this alias again. Uh, and he's back in New York City uh, right around Thanksgiving, and he witnesses a drunk Macy's Day Parade Santa, hmm. and he's livid, you know, saying disgrace. Right. But you know, rather than smiting the man, uh, Greco-Roman style. Right. Uh, he goes to his boss and gets him fired. Nice. And takes his <laughs> very, job. Very 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. Takes his job. So in any case, it's, it's not too long for people start suspecting that perhaps this Kringle guy is the real Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And suspicion is raised apparently even further when Kringle speaks Dutch to a little Dutch girl. Mm. Because why would anyone was not santa claus bothered to learn dutch no there's no reason no no reason at all no <laughs> none at all so of course that's suspicious uh but <laughs> after he refuses to deny his identity things quickly escalate and kringle is committed as mentally incompetent and he has to prove that he's santa in order to escape a life sentence in a new york state insane asylum my goodness and and of course he does with yeah. the help of the U.S. Postal Service that directs all the unsent letters to Santa to the courtroom that if he is vouched for by such an august entity as the U.S. Postal Service, <laughs> yeah. he must be Santa Claus. Your tax dollars at work, folks. Yeah, saving the day once again. Once again. So that Santa Claus, a figure who spans nearly 2,000 years in one form or another, you know, and is he... A beatified bishop who adopted some local winter pagan customs uh, to fit in uh, in the Norse world, or is he a Norse deity who decided to join the winning team and used Christmas to slip in through the back door? Yeah, we we may not know, but uh, the question, of course, the big question for us to address is: Is Santa a god? So again, Dr. Jim Davies of Carleton University uh, in Canada examined this recently from an anthropological point of view. And according to Davies, there are a couple of important tests to consider. Santa has magical powers. Santa has what he calls strategic knowledge about moral behavior, which is very important for a God because he knows if you've been bad, he knows if you've been good. So that is an important God aspect. He is associated with rituals and offerings Sure. Uh, as people sacrifice milk and cookies to him. Uh, so that's one. However, according to Davies, he says, well, there is no separate cult of Santa Claus, at least for adults. And so maybe he is not. But, you know, I don't know if uh, mall Santas or parade Santas qualify <laughs> as maybe a pop-up cult center. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but even Davies admits that this mid-20th Song of Praise to Santa, which is, of course, the definition of a hymn, uh, mm. does have some divine bo- vibes. Uh, you better watch out. You better not cry. Yeah. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. <laughs> Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad we're good, so be good. For goodness' sake, yeah. Boy, I, I, until yeah, I heard yeah. you read that, I, I wasn't aware of how really hard that song goes. <laughs> it, Almost it, a puritanical never... fervor of, of "Do not do this." Yeah, he's he's looking, he's watching. So, yeah. 
There doesn't we need go. his little crows anymore. His little birds, uh, his ravens. He has that ordained knowledge of morality. Yes. Strategic knowledge. Morality. Wow. That's quite a tale. There we go. Well, uh, fascinating. Again, learned a lot. A lot of there I did not know. A very, very compelling figure. Uh, like a lot of our, our traditional godlike figures, sort of as something of an amalgam of yeah. different traditions and, and beings, but uh, somehow connected into one identity. Fascinating. Well done. I I, I do want to say one quick thing, and I'm glad sure. that you mentioned King Charles the First and Charles the Second because yeah. uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot said about this when uh, the current King of England, King Charles the uh, Third, chose that to be his name um, upon the passing of the Queen. Right. But King Charles the Second, of course, you mentioned what happened to King Charles the First, but King Charles the uh, Second did not take lightly. Uh, the revolutionaries who had displaced his father for that yeah. period of time. So what I didn't know, and I'll, I I think I'm getting this right. I'm doing it from memory, but I'm pretty sure that King Charles II, once he ascended the throne, sought revenge on all revolutionaries and for them to be executed, living or dead. <laughs> so as I understand it, King Charles actually had the bodies of some of the revolutionary leaders dug up and their corpses beheaded. In order to Excellent. exact revenge upon those who dare uh, challenge the crown, we'll so, have to have the God versus God intern check that out. I know. Get back to us. I, but I found that fascinating because, on one hand, based on what you said, you know, when when King Charles the Third, today's King Charles, on one hand, he could sort of become a, a he could gain the popularity among the people by claiming to be in this direct lineage of, of the King who saved Christmas. So this time of year, he could really come out swinging in his first Christmas season as King Charles yeah, III. Sure. But when you look into that King Charles II's uh, broader story, it's, it's maybe not as politically palatable. So mm. fascinating choice. I, I I don't know that we'll hear much about it in the mainstream media, but it's well, out we'll there. See. Yeah. God save the King. Excellent. Right. Well, this should be, uh, an unusual matchup to say the least, uh, but we got to run it through the process. So, Let's uh, let's have another sip of our festive beverages, and yeah. then let's uh, return for we'll come back five categories just after the break. All right. All right, and we are back. We have our five categories. The first one is, of course. Immortal Combat. And I'll go first on this. Uh, an interesting one for us, I think. You know, we don't generally probably picture Santa Claus as a fighter uh, <laughs> no. so much. Uh, but there were a couple times at least where apparently he did have that side to some extent. Mm. And I didn't mention this story about him in his life, original life as a bishop. Uh, but apparently he attended the famous Church Council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the Nicene Creed and all that comes from. Yeah. And Nicholas apparently, uh, you know, things get heated, little discussions, and Nicholas apparently slapped a fellow bishop who he considered to be a heretic. Okay. And was per- perhaps defrocked for this, for slapping another bishop at the conference, which apparently wow. was a no-no. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there may be a hint of the tougher side uh, to the original St. Nicholas, you know, mm-hmm. or at least the willingness to gauge in a slap fight with a fellow elderly <laughs> churchman. So, uh, there's that. Um, 
Now, the modern Santa uh, seems to have adapted to the times, and he's a little less prone uh, to the corporal punishment. Right. Uh, but the Center Claus era, he he was definitely known to carry a switch uh, specifically for physically pun- punishing children. Yeah. Uh, and in addition, uh, he's got a tradition of having that enforcer uh, with him, sometimes known as Connect Ruprecht in Germany. Uh, or Krampus in in Austria, oh, yeah. who who will occasionally swing a bag of ashes at children, huh. and, and 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 hit them. Um, you know his, his more modern entourage probably not going to be a lot of help in, in a in a melee. Uh, you know the toy making elves, not so much. No, uh, Mrs. Claus, uh, unless it's a baking contest. <laughs> if we change the rules, it's not going to help that much. Um, he does have a flying sled. Sure. Yeah. He, he, uh, he can shrink apparently. So yeah, some sort of Ant-Man vibes. <laughs> right. Uh, and, uh, and we've seen and many times where he, he touches his nose and can fly up a chimney. Yeah. So, you know, so he's got, he's got some skills in there. Uh, you know, given his consumption of milk and cookies, I feel like, uh, He'd be a pretty good bet were this an eating contest. Right. But it is not. So no, it's not. Um, you know, so so that's that's him. Uh he he you ha- he went on trial twice. Uh he didn't attempt to break free physically in either of those. Hmm. Um, you know, no reindeer Krampus burst into the courtroom to help him out. No. So I, I do think that willingness to fight is is an issue here. Yes, uh, certainly. Yeah. You know, especially uh, to pick on someone his own size. Yeah, yeah I'll take a switch to a un- unruly 17th century Dutch child, but <laughs> not a lot more than that. Slim pickings. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, Saturn is kind of almost a, a tale of two figures. You know, in his earlier days when he was a Titan, you know, those original Titans were gigantic. They had all sorts of sort of primordial powers that yeah. could, you know, move heavens and earth. So presumably he had a great deal of strength back in those days. Um, even in later in that, you know, the, the end of that first period of his life, clearly willingness to fight, he was willing to castrate his own father. So yeah. that suggests yeah. uh, this is not cow from, from conflict no. uh, at all. Uh, still carries that scythe around, of course, as a reminder of that. Um, was willing to do what it took to to maintain power. So, of course, swallowing his own children until... Jupiter slash Zeus brought an end to that. Uh, so in that earlier era, clearly I think he was a little more thuggish, a little more did what had to be done to hang right. on to power. But the second act of his life, when he becomes that sort of king in the to the ancient Romans, uh, very different figure. I mean, you don't, you don't. There's not much written about him. He's very much a sort of almost a technocrat. He ends up, right. you know, sort of amassing political power. He has sway over agriculture and financial markets and time. He seems much more devoted to the sort of machinations of of the state, right. uh, which for that, that job seems appropriate. Um, not much of a fighter in, in that sense, really more of, of a doer. However, the entourage thing is interesting because I think in, in the earlier version of, of you know, Saturn, I don't think he would have a whole lot of champions around him given the way he treated certainly his family members. Yep. Um, maybe some of the other Titans might've uh, you know come around, but even they ultimately all with the exception of Prometheus and a few others, ended up getting defeated. So right. uh, that said, in the later half, his entourage was essentially all the revelers in Saturnalia. So they uh, began yeah. 
with a ceremony where they brought the statue out. There was a specially made one of Saturn that they would bring down. They would process it down to a special couch that was made for the event. And Saturn in the statue form would oversee all the proceedings for the week to, to follow. So everybody there who was having a great time, it was clearly very, very into Saturnalia, yeah. uh, would essentially be his de facto entourage should any sure. harm come to him. So I think for that reason, uh, combined with, I think, what you outlined earlier in terms of Santa being uh, really not terribly documented in terms of, uh, of pugilism other than the occasional elderly bishop sure. slap, um, I think I will give Saturn uh, my vote for Immortal Combat. Yes, yeah, so I think, uh, I you know, uh, I don't think necessarily that we should assume that that Cronus level of, uh, you know, has ever left him entirely. But it's He's still oh, carrying yeah. the scythe around with us to, That's to right. remind remind you uh and maybe janice has now joined his entourage and i don't really want to mess with that nope uh freaky guy no so way. uh yeah i'm gonna go with uh saturn as well on this one so i think immortal combat round one goes to saturn very good and that brings us to our second round which is curriculum deity which again is normally who would you rather be who would you rather worship but in this one it is who would you rather be and whose holiday would you rather celebrate? That's right. Special little twist for, for this uh, special edition. For the holiday, yeah, holiday yes. episode. All right. And so I believe you're going to go first on this one, Matt? Yes, indeed. So who would you rather be? Well, you know, certainly a dark past in the case of Saturn. Uh, certainly not, you know, when you had to be, if you had to be him with that past, it would be very challenging to, for instance, today have to sit down among your family for Christmas dinner <laughs> Uh, you know, having castrated your father and eaten your children, just it's going to be it's not going to be pleasant. There's going to be a lot of conflict there. So yeah. uh, definitely has a share of enemies. But because of that great comeback story, um, he is at least was during that period of the ancients, really, really quite beloved. Um, and so there's something to that. So he left on a high note. Um, so I think there's there's you know as much as he could have, he was able to sort of outrun that past. And, you know, I love a good comeback story. And this mm -hmm. is this is really that. So so there, there's an appeal to being somebody who has mm -hmm. overcome uh, that dark past to a place of, of great popularity and celebration. Uh, so pretty strong marks there for Saturn. In terms of celebrating, so I mentioned earlier the Temple of Saturn was right there in the Roman Forum with the treasury housed there. Uh, that was also where the primary festivities of Saturnalia were to take place, as we might expect. Now, in terms of what we'd rather, how we'd rather celebrate. Well, it turns out that temple is still there today in Rome and it's in pretty good shape. So in theory, yeah. you and I could head down there now um, <laughs> and celebrate Saturnalia right, ourselves. Right. I mean, we could, you know, put on some clothes, some, some pajamas. I suspect that level of uh, drunkenness and back talk to authority may not be as much appreciated <laughs> in contemporary Rome. No. Um, we could try it, but you know, Saturnalia does sound pretty great. I have to say on paper, in terms of the equality, in terms of, the revelry uh, sounds great for a day, a full yeah. week of that kind of decadence, at least these days, it could be a lot to handle. I don't even like staying up past 10 <laughs> when I can get past it. So I'm not sure that my stamina or, or liver or either of them uh, could really handle that. But um, and there's a, st a strike against Saturnalia in that I did not mention this, but it also had a bit of a dark side in the okay. sense that it was on certain occasions an occasion for murder. So oh, yeah, I really left that one in the back pocket, but often there were a series of historical figures who took advantage of the distraction of that week 
to plot crimes with the notion that they wouldn't get caught. So according to Cicero, there was this group of Catiline conspirators who plotted to burn the city and kill the entire Senate while everyone was distracted with the festival. Yeah, now, thankfully, yeah. they were not successful doing that, uh, but there was a very detailed plot pulled together for that end. Uh, there was a Roman emperor, Caracalla, who for a while co-ruled alongside his brother, Geta, yeah. uh, but didn't much like their power-sharing arrangements. So he plotted and in fact succeeded to murder his brother during the feast and then okay, seize control yeah. for himself. So he used Saturnalia as his uh, as his smokescreen to get yeah. that done. Uh, but perhaps the, mo- the most tragic story uh, about murder and Saturnalia is that of the Roman emperor Commodus who, of course, was the son of the great Marcus Aurelius, yep. uh, sadly was strangled in his bath uh, by Narcissus, who was a professional wrestler, interestingly. Nice. Um, and there's a certain irony, and it was all during Saturnalia. So an irony that a guy named Commodus was killed in the commode, first yeah. of all, really somehow should have seen that coming. <laughs> um, but also proof that in the case of, of the, the killer, Narcissus, that at least in ancient Rome, professional wrestling was very real. Yeah, really <laughs> severe consequences. So maybe maybe that was the dispute. <laughs> that's that's right. Uh, so as much as I do enjoy the idea of Saturnalia on paper, I think celebrating it now would be a bit of a bit of a chore. Mm. Um, and a bit and dangerous. Might be, it might be a, a bit much. Yeah, yeah, a bit much. So that's what yeah. I've got there. All right. Well, uh, you know, we'll see. So, um, you know. On Santa, if you want to be him, you know he's he's always depicted as as an older man, even uh, in his uh, Santa Claus days. So, right. you know, it's a little bit of a question mark for me having immortality but not youth. That's that's traditionally mm. kind of a kind of a curse, right? Um, but he is a spry old man, and we mm. hear that often. Uh, he can go up and down up and down a chimney, no problem. So if he doesn't have any problem with stairs or anything. He just uses the chimney. Despite uh, his significant girth. Yeah. Um, and we may have this ability to shrink. So uh, he's got the flying sleigh. He mm-hmm. seems to be, have a fairly happy marriage in the depictions that we have of that. Sure. Uh, he does live up in the North Pole, though. Uh, and, you know, it's a little cold. That's uh, uh, not the kind of, you know, it's not Boca. It's not uh, where no. you necessarily want to retire to. Uh, but it is generally kind of a, a compound or village that he has. Uh, it's got his toy factory, his reindeer uh, stables, company housing, mm. uh, his own residence. Uh, so, you know, he does have his own compound up there and, and uh, he, he's running the show. So that, yes. despite being up there at, at the North Pole, you know, now in terms of this holiday, I'm not going to go in this uh, too much, but. You know, what do you want to mention? There are actually two. There is the Feast of St. Nicholas, mm. which is not so much uh, of a holiday here in the English-speaking world, but our uh, German and Dutch friends still enjoy that. Um, and, of course, Christmas. Um, but, you know, one of the issues with Christmas is that he he does share that, you know, uh, you with uh, uh, you may have heard of Jesus Christ. Yes, he's also part of that festivities. (laughs) He is. So it is not solely a a Santa Claus holiday. No, even though, uh, you know, many of the elements that we have and enjoy um, are attributed to him Uh, back on the uh, Feast of St. Nicholas. um, You know, I think one of the the elements which is kind of interesting just because it's different for us um, is that is primarily a feast 
for children, but there's also an annual grudge fest for grownups. And so uh, part of this St. Nicholas uh, tradition is a poem. And so they're, they're, they have slam poetry. <laughs> that, really? That the uh, adult guests give to fellow uh, party goers. Wow. Uh, you know, such as, uh, you know, putting out your bad breath or, or your <laughs> your Dutch accent is crap or, or you drink too much, things like that. So, yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, despite, uh, you know, the Christmas tree and all that, those those are ones that I sort of attribute to uh, Santa. So despite him sharing the holiday, uh, I think I would maybe have a different answer if it was, you know, I would, I would certainly like to do celebrate a Saturnalia once. Yes. To have experienced it. Yes. Having having had many Christmases, uh, you know, I, I would like to do it. But in terms of giving up uh, Christmas to to permanently take on Saturnalia, I don't think I, I'm I'm quite ready to do that. Fair enough. Uh, especially given the high, heightened uh, opportunity to be murdered. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point about about Jesus and Santa, and, and essentially yeah. what is a pretty successful power sharing arrangement yeah. when it comes to Christmas. You never really hear either one dissing the other. There's never, you know, anything no, anti no, baby Jesus coming out of Santa's mouth. I, you know, I've read the Bible. I don't recall even in his later adventures in the Book of Mormon. I don't recall Jesus ever <laughs> uh, had a bad word to say about Santa. So clearly, no. they've got a good arrangement going there. Yeah. No. Def- definitely. Uh, so. Uh... You know, I'm taking the offering of cookies, uh, <laughs> presents, the gifts, uh, mistletoe, matching PJs. Yeah, and I'm I'm going with Santa. I I I will join that vote. I think uh, as much as I appreciate uh, the ability to be Saturn and receive all that adoration uh, once a year, if the if the festival was still going, which is not, <laughs> yeah, so right, there, right. there's a little bit of a ding there. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think you know even despite the. Uh, the chilly climbs up in uh, the North Pole. I think he's probably got a pretty good setup up there. And and I think by given how well funded his operation seems to be, I would suspect this place is uh, is well heated. So yeah, I too will choose Santa uh, for curriculum deity. All right, so we are all tied up one one, and that brings us to good God. So and that is of course pretty self explanatory. Who has the best character? Right. Um, and I'll go first here with Santa Claus, you know, and for the most part, Santa comes down as a fairly positive figure. He's jolly, right? Uh, which was just point in his favor. Uh, Nicholas, uh, in his human life, uh, he gives the gift to the girls, uh, which may or may not have come from the church offering plate. He, he <laughs> saves, resurrects the butchered kids, uh, which is good, uh, on the Father Christmas side, you know, he didn't, he had maybe fewer direct acts of kindness or miracles, but he certainly promoted the notion of community and generosity along with feasting and gambling and drinking. Uh, and, and most folklorists, uh, you know, kind of you pointed to that uh, Charles Dickens, that the ghost of Christmas present in the Christmas Carol was in fact Father Christmas, just mm-hmm. kind of going yeah. under another guy so you can picture right. him that way um and the main santa uh persona is obviously very generous he's good with kids mm-hmm. hard working uh <laughs> you know 
a couple downsides that kind of come out of uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed uh, Reindeer. It could be a bit of a strict boss up there in the workshop. Right. Uh, you know, he initially rejects uh, the differently abled Rudolph, uh, <laughs> telling his father that he should be ashamed of himself. So that was, yeah. a, that was a bad day. He was having a yeah. bad day. That one, that's a harsh, a yeah. mark against him. Um, you know, and there's at least one song that reports uh, that Santa at least kissed another man's wife. Oh, uh, in one of his visits, as the child looked on, um, he, he the child saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. Oh, that's right. So uh, we don't know how far that went. That's all the report we got. <laughs> um, you know, and then, then there's the hymn to Santa called Santa Baby. Yes. Uh, which uh, is not about Santa Claus as an infant, uh, as you might expect from the title. <laughs> but in fact, a woman hinting that she will be his girlfriend in exchange for a convertible and a platinum mine. Uh, oh. But we don't ever, however, ever get Santa's side or reaction to this <laughs> offer. So we don't know. We can't really pin, pin that one on him about what kind of level this debauchery went. Right, right. Uh, so at a sy- systemic level, uh, you know, there's some people who do have a little bit of an issue with Santa's sort of surveillance state mentality. Yes. He can come off as a little bit of a narc. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in in recent addition to household, we talk, we talked about how in the Odin days had the had the ravens, and now we have uh, elves that sit on people's shelves. Yeah, and and that's come under fire for for having a, a surveillance state mentality. Sure. But you know, overall, again, uh, gift giving to needy, worthy children, um, generally promoting good behavior among children giving away for parents to exact good behavior from children for at least one month a year. That's right. Is, is a positive. So, yeah. And, and if you think about it, the, since the early days of, of that character had that sort of both sides of judgment, had the, had the butcher had the ability to, to work the switch. Yep. You know, Santa has definitely scaled that back dramatically. So really the punishment now is just lack of presence yes, as opposed to, it- corporal punishment there's no right. physical beatings in atonement no. for your sins no but i mean i i'd suggest that's a that's a that speaks well to his character that he's dialed back that part of his uh his he's approach. adapted to the time certainly yeah that's right interesting well i <clears throat> i think the you know as we said before saturn has a, has a classic sort of yes but situation in terms of character yeah you know <clears throat> there's the matter of devouring the children but eventually he did disgorge them, um, albeit <laughs> involuntarily. Right. Um, and, you know, because of that disgorgement, they did end up, you know, eventually rolling the universe for centuries, the, yeah. the children that they, he uh, gave up. So arguably the most important instance of vomiting in human history. Um, and so he did sort of at least at some point gave up on those shenanigans. Um, however, voluntary or not is in dispute. But right. uh, as we said, he made a tremendous comeback after he was sent into exile, you know, at least the version that got to go to Italy instead of hell. Right. Um, and he presided over the golden age, time of equality, fairness, and ease. Um, I mentioned before he Saturn was a man of the people when he was a ruler, not just in terms of getting that, that ruling coalition, uh, but in very strong economic terms. So he was the original populist of Rome, or as they called it then, a popularist. Mm-hmm. And particularly he, he did things like reducing the price of grain that was distributed to the poorest people, so hmm. that they could they could afford to eat well. So he had a certain sense of compassion because that is where he gained his political power. He was able to remain as king um, because he had the support of the common people. So typically, 
in any kind of role like that in that time, you needed to have the support of the upper echelons to stay yeah. in power. Uh, he did it the other way. He did it from the bottom up. So really did treat the people well, which I think is, is speaks well to why uh, Saturnalia was the big hit that it was. I think yeah. people sincerely appreciated that in a ruler and, and, and celebrated it. Uh, so, a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. Right. Uh, I, I think he is, as we said, he ended well uh, after a rough beginning. So I think looking at the two, it's a tough one. Yeah. It's, it, it is a close call. I, I, I may have to, you know, I think I still have to give Santa uh, the benefit of the doubt of this one because the track record of not only having the fun uh, kind of borrowed from Saturnalia, but the... Uh, just the work ethic, getting it done year after year, you know, getting those, getting those presents out there, keeping the lore alive. Uh, I think that character shines pretty brightly. So I, I give, I give Santa the edge in terms of that one. You know, this is interesting. I, you know, it's not maybe one you would have expected to have a, as a close call uh, mm. coming into this. Uh, you know, what with the, you know, the, the children needing, you know, <laughs> often it, a deal breaker. <laughs> it, 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 it gets, it, it, it gets the headlines, uh, yeah, you know, that's right. Uh, but but you eat one child, and uh, <laughs> you, you, right. you're always known as that. So yes, and and we have the interesting. There is that contrast uh, with the butcher story. Is that there was a butcher who was eating children, and Saint Nicholas stopped them. That's right. He brought them back uh, voluntarily. <laughs> so he he, yeah. he he voluntarily uh, brought brought them back but then interesting he didn't he didn't punish the butcher which uh would have if been, anything he he elevated and hired him yeah which, which would have been sort of the saturn figure You're right in that story so it is an interesting. interesting parallel you know you can look at that uh golden age as being well is that more systemically uh advantageous than giving out gifts once a year mm. right and does that make up for uh uh you know his 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 reign maybe before that which which wasn't as positive with, with the titans and the monsters well so. and like like any kind of leading figure all the way up to the american presidency a lot of it just is the hand you're dealt with timing right and saturn had the good fortune in his exile of having ruling at a time where life was much simpler where the evils of the world had not been handed down yet from, from Olympus. So good timing, but he handled it well. He yeah. the moment. Yeah. So that, that is interesting. Uh, so I just, I, unfortunately, I don't think, you know, you can't get quite past the, the, the baby killing and, no. and eating you know, on enough. your own children. Um, and, 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 you know, that you didn't give up voluntarily. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to have to join it and go with Santa though. Again, closer than one, maybe yeah. would have thought. You didn't expect Saturn to end up as a political progressive in the yeah, end. No. Looking no, after you don't. the little guy, but he did. All right. And that brings us to iconography. Yes. And uh, this is, uh, you know, kind of how their image today, how they, they come down to us. Uh, and I will let you go first. Yes. Well, of course, Saturn, you know, you've got some, some of the, the big trophies. You've got the planet. Uh Named after him, of course, yeah. a, a pretty impressive one. Not as not as impressive as Jupiter, but as we know, you know, the son fared better than the father. Right. Uh, so Jupiter deserves uh, the larger planet, but Saturn is no slouch. Um, also a day of the week, and not just a day of the week in Saturday, but arguably perhaps the best yeah. uh, in, in most people's assessments. So a very good good get there. Um, 
So for for legacy, that that carries some weight. Less impressively, uh, the Saturn automobile, of course, uh, <laughs> I recall being um, kind of a big thing for a while, but kind of crappy. Uh, I remember GM was at the end losing three thousand dollars on each one that it sold, which is <laughs> never a good sign. No, uh, so not a great legacy there. You don't see too many on the road anymore. Um, you have a Sega video game console, an old one called the Saturn. There's the Saturn Awards, uh, presented by the American or the Academy of Science Fiction, Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. Okay. There is a progressive rock band from Pakistan called Saturn. <laughs> um, I did find their YouTube channel. Not bad. Not bad at yeah. all. I know. Right. You know, I'm into some weird uh, progressive rock music, and this was yeah. okay. Uh, but perhaps, you know, at least musically, more, more prominent, there is a an odd deep cut in Stevie Wonder's album, Songs in the Key of Life. Great album. Tremendous double album. Song yeah. is probably the low point. It talks about Stevie wishing he could escape to Saturn okay. because it's getting too hot down on Earth. He thinks people live to the age of 205 on Saturn, so he wants to be there. Um, it's an odd little tune uh, yeah. surrounded by a lot of masterpieces. So uh, I hope Stevie does get to 205. Don't get right. me wrong, but I hope he does it right here on Earth. So he's got a, um, he's got a whole theory about a different golden age going on. Going on, on elsewhere yeah. in the ringed planet. That's right. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so an odd little choice there. Now Saturnalia as a legacy has some some important tent poles. So there's a video game uh, by that title, and it's a survival horror adventure set in Sardinia in Italy. <laughs> For some reason, it's set in the late '80s, and it's got this sort of neon folk aesthetic. I don't know what audience that's intended to appeal to. I know. <laughs> apparently, it's a thing. I don't know. I'm uh, intrigued. Yeah, so look it up. There's uh, there's plenty of gameplay videos available. Uh, science fiction crime novels with that title. There is a genus of dinosaur um, called Saturnalia. They they were they lived in both Brazil in South America and Zimbabwe in Africa. Um, oh. That was back when the two places were within walking distance oh, yeah, from each yeah. other. So it's a little more a easy to cut. do. Uh, there's a Japanese thoroughbred racehorse named Saturnalia who was uh, celebrated in the late uh, 2000s. Uh, undefeated in three starts. Um, the bigger legacy, I think, of course, is the after effects of the holiday itself. The, the parallels we talked about with Christmas, so much that lives on in how we celebrate from the wreaths to the gift giving to the verses. Uh, but as we talked about in the first seg segment, you've got trivia contests sort of getting getting birthed there. You've got Halloween vandalism. You've got uh, you know greeting cards having verses within them. You've got the tradition of letting an unqualified buffoon be in charge for a little while. <laughs> all to live on uh, much, much later. And so even though Saturn himself and Saturnalia really don't have as much of the appreciation these days as they should, uh, I think the legacy of both certainly lives on. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, th there are a lot of things. You know, Saturday, you know, that is the, a day of rest, at least for uh, many people. So that is true. Reenacting again that golden age, golden age yep. of, of every Saturday. Uh, Santa Claus, of course, you know, is a big brand uh, these days, especially in, in America and I believe uh, our friends over in Britain as well. Um, instantly recognizable. Yes. Uh, there are a huge number of, of movies uh, featuring Santa. Mm. There's Santa, the Santa Claus one, two and three, oh, uh, which combines the convicted murdering actor, Tim Allen and some <laughs> legal puns. Uh, and there is, the Santa Clauses, uh, which is actually coming out just this holiday season. There's movies about Fred Claus, his brother, mm. supposedly. Right, right. Uh, there's Arthur, Arthur Christmas, his son. 
you know, they've got a whole whole subgenre of filmmaking, yeah. uh, just about Santa. There are tons and tons of songs uh, about Santa Claus. Right. Um, there is, of course, a Santa holster, uh, but happily, it, it is not a gun holster. <laughs> it, it it is a drink holster belt. Uh, for a six pack of canned drink of your choice, okay, right around your belt for easy access. Uh, and that is and, Santa branded. It is Santa branded. It's a Santa belt. It, it looks like kind of the midsection of of your uh, typical Santa with a red uh, red outfit and black belt. I was not uh, aware with, of that. Yeah, so that that and yet is I should not be surprised that somehow a, a Holster factors into this part of the program, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, there actually are fewer books, uh, interesting about Santa Claus, uh, at least outside of children's uh books. That I, I did find one that I thought was interesting, which is not uh a children's book, it is a Santa Claus romance. Oh dear, of course, it is called Santa Claus is Going to Town on Me. <laughs> so um, and how many copies of this book do you possess right now? <laughs> none, none yet, but it's not yet the holiday season. So uh, the, the blurb is uh, when holiday wakes up Christmas Eve to find an intruder in her home, oh, she does what any one else would do and grabs a replica medieval broadsword and sneaks downstairs to deal with him. But it isn't a burglar. He wears a big red coat and big brown boots and has a big round belly that shakes like a bowl full of jelly. He's Santa Claus, and he's hot. Oh dear Lord! <laughs> so, oh boy. So goes into a couple other things after that. Um, a couple of U.S. cities are actually named after Santa Claus. Oh yeah, Indiana, right? There's the Santa Claus, Georgia, and Santa Claus City, Indiana. Yeah. Uh, there of course are the Santa Claus Christmas store chain. Uh, and there is even a Santa Claus University uh, that will teach you how to be Santa Claus uh, for a mall. Yeah, I'm sure that does require a little bit of training. Yeah, and th there are 12 different Santa Claus theme parks in the United States, including uh, Santa's Village in the great state of New Hampshire, New Hampshire which uh, is a family favorite uh in my household and there are of course the phenomenon of the mall santas uh a tradition that is at least 140 years old uh so there's also a strong strong uh marketing tradition uh including as you alluded to earlier the 90-year relationship with the coca-cola brand right so strong, so, in fact, that a lot of people have the misconception that Coca-Cola actually invented Santa Claus as a character no, because no. their advertising was so heavy back in those early days. That is not true, as you, is, no, as you pointed out in great detail. But yes. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, you know, I think because we are a, uh, a English-speaking centric uh, uh, podcast for obvious reasons. Yes. Uh, and, and, and a, uh, you know, modern uh centric podcast it, it's tough to compare how big say you know it, we, we're not generally comparing how big say Sa uh saturn was back in rome right. or how big santa is today right it, it is really what came through to us today and, yes. and i would say uh, as much, much as i love saturday 
yes. I have to go with 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 Santa because that is uh, is more direct. You know, all those marketing things, all those songs, all yeah. the, are more directly connected to uh, himself. Yeah, I, I you can't you can't deny the, the the lasting power of that character in uh, in popular culture here. Uh, a couple little figments, I, if memory serves, I believe Santa Claus, Indiana, was the hometown of Jay Cutler, the uh, former and now disgraced uh, Chicago <laughs> Bears quarterback from some years back. Uh, you yeah, also so. reminded me, so there, one of these Santa related theme parks is also called Santa's Village, and is in Dundee, Illinois. Not no. too far from where I grew up. And in, in full disclosure, I did work there for three no. weeks as a ride operator at the age of 16. Uh, three weeks. Worst worst job I ever had. Yeah. So I was essentially, <laughs> I mean, it's Santa's Village is, is somewhere in between, uh, you know, it's not as sort of as as transient as like a, as a carnival, but it's also nowhere near like the kind of permanent theme park that we've become accustomed to at the higher end. It is somewhere in between. And so, okay. So I was not quite a carny in in the earlier days of my employment, but I was pretty darn close. So I think I've I've suppressed that memory pretty successfully over the last few decades. And at the sound of the the word Santa's Village, it all came back. <laughs> so yes, I, I I join you uh, in voting for Santa. I think the uh, the legacy is hard to deny, and uh, certainly in our current day, he's the guy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, so Santa is ahead three to one, which means he's going to win the gold mistletoe but yes. we as always want to play this out and find yes. out how it all final score uh is going to be and that brings us to our fifth and final category which is matinee idol yes and that is of course who would make the better movie or limited series right and i will uh i'll go first um so obviously that you know as I mentioned, there are a bunch of Santa movies uh, already, uh, you know, where he's at the center of action or maybe he's a supporting character. Uh, this holiday season, there are two widely advertised entries, uh, the Santa Clauses and uh, Violent Night. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw a trailer for that. Yeah. yeah. So um, his entourage have their own movies. Rudolph, uh, his brother, Fred, Buddy the Elf. Krampus has a couple. Yeah. Uh, there is even uh, a movie, a 3D animated short film for Tinkerdoodle, the organizing <laughs> elf, which airs at Santa's Village in New Hampshire. Wow. Uh, well worth uh, checking out if, if you have 15 minutes to spare. That is really it stretching the, uh, the intellectual property <laughs> yeah. there. That's, yeah. The, so the, the whole thing is getting explored, of course. Uh, right. Because there's so much interest in it, but you know his greatest test in his history, uh, which we discussed earlier, I think so far has been too hot for Hollywood to handle. Yeah, <laughs> and I am, of course, of speaking of his battles with the Puritans. Yes, back in the English Civil War. So, oh yeah, that's where I'm going. So we, we I would open on figurehead of a ship, figurehead of Saint Nicholas cutting through the waves on a sailing vessel. Mm. When land is spotted off board, off board, and on board among the crew is a mysterious sailor, an older, large, heavy-set man, kind of a salt and pepper beard. Uh, nobody really knows where he came from. Uh, and when the captain at first plans to set up their trading post at what will eventually become New Jersey, uh, the old sailor knows that he has to intervene <laughs> and uses his magic powers to steer the crew 
over to Manhattan for right. a successful introduction of New Amsterdam. Then we get kind of a montage of his early New Amsterdam days uh, where he settles in the wilds of a will become Midtown, you know, maybe in some flashback uh, scenes to deal with his troubles in Europe with those uh, reformist Christians, including right. Martin Luther trying to give his job away to a baby angel, depending to be baby Jesus <laughs> trauma there. Uh, eventually, you know, he has to go back to England as the good as the news of his good friend and feasting companion, King Charles the first and his travails with the Puritans comes to him. And so then we sent, we switch over to the battle scenes, you know, and he's fighting with uh, alongside King Charles to save Christmas. And uh, Santa is faced with that moral crisis, you know, how much he's willing to do in battle. Yeah, he's willing to use his pipe to give smoke cover to the king's army. <laughs> He'll use his flying wagon to to deliver supplies or, or be some sort of lookout. Uh, but, you know, he refuses to mount a cannon to his sleigh because it just uh, is not who he is. Right. Uh, you know, maybe we get a little bit of a flashback to the cannibal butcher incident and kind of his <laughs> horror at violence. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, the king loses. And then Santa is captured and tried by the Puritans. Uh, but it is this overzealous prosecution that not only leads to Santa's acquittal, but the fall of Puritan rule mm. and the restoration of royalty and Christmas to England. Yes. So uh, I was thinking, you know, casting um, Tom Hardy as Santa Claus. Love it. Perfect. Uh, you know, he's a rugged guy. Can can go out there and do some of those action scenes. Yep. And uh, Charles Windsor as King Charles the First. Uh, it practically casts itself. Yeah. Uh, and, and and maybe uh, a little bit of a a, a small role for uh, Paul Giamatti's head <laughs> as a baby Jesus. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Yes. Love it. <laughs> Call back there. Nice. So that's what I have uh, on uh, very strong on the movie for Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah. I, I I love it. I think I think uh, getting King Charles to play uh, his his predecessor uh, would be great for his PR campaign to, yeah. to gain up his popularity rating. It would be an easy role for him to play. Love it. Well, I, I I'll admit, Andrew, I bent the rules a little bit on this one because I know we we often talk about a movie or limited series, but since this episode has reminded us of the format. That, that I love so dearly, the good old-fashioned televised Christmas special. <laughs> uh, you know, we got them for you know, what Charlie Brown, you know, the Brady Bunch, even Star Wars. The, sure. you know, there, there's a proud tradition of, of those one-offs where you've got a good host, got some light musical numbers, some banter. Uh, so I, I kind of, I kept coming back to that as, as essentially the movie version for this category. And as I thought about it, I kept coming back to that weird Stevie Wonder song. So I'm envisioning a televised special and called Saturnalia with Stevie. So picture it's a live broadcast from Stevie. Uh, he's on a base on the surface of Saturn where he now lives. Uh, our host is, is dressed himself in, in very unusual and colorful clothing. That's not hard to picture. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy for us to picture. It might be more difficult for him to picture, but that's a different story. Uh, so Stevie's going to sit at the piano. He's going to tell us old tales of Saturnalia, uh, regale us with the old stories, with accompanying songs. And, you know, like a good Christmas special, you're going to get your special guest stars. So they they symbolize kind of the elements of Saturnalia. You've got, you know, you got 
Heath Richards to represent constant intoxication. Um, to play a few numbers, you got Ben Affleck to represent at a poker table to represent unhinged sure. gambling. Uh, maybe you can you can get Gal Gadot and Brie Larson as Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel to do a good old fashioned lady gladiator battle just to, <laughs> to replicate that old uh, saw. Maybe the the performer known as Wee Man from the Jackass films would be willing to to make an appearance and and hunt some cranes uh, just in the spirit of the, of the old days. Who knows? Um, yeah, he'd do it. He would do it, but you know, good old Stevie. He he tells us how glad he is to be on Saturn and how he traveled for months to get there, and even gives us a little tour of his living quarters. He's, we're all very happy that clearly he's fulfilled his dream that he prophesied so long ago in that song. At some point, Stevie also does a drum solo, um, reminding us, as we learned in I don't know if you've seen uh, Summer of Soul, that the documentary about that music festival in Harlem. Stevie's a smoking drummer. Oh, yeah. really, really good. So, like, we got to bring that back. Show more yeah. people that. In the spirit of equality, uh, later in the special, Stevie then serves dinner to the entire crew, um, which probably takes a while, and there's probably a little bit of spilling over the course of the dinner, but it's a lovely gesture, and it speaks yeah. to that Saturnalian sense of uh, uh, of equality. Um, then there's a big ending. So Stevie walks off the stage for, for a brief moment, then he returns triumphantly on the back of, you guessed it, Saturnalia herself, the famed Japanese thoroughbred, making a comeback. <laughs> You know, some horses get to sent get sent to stud farms after they retire. Some go to the glue factory, but nope, old Saturnalia. She got assigned to enjoy his golden years on a distant ringed planet with Stevie Wonder. So, at the end, Stevie signs off from the base, and of course, as we reflect back on what we've just seen, the camera slowly pans back to reveal that in fact, the entire special was shot on the sound stage. Uh... But Stevie thinks he is on Saturn. <laughs> Uh, thinks he's there. We all agree not to tell him otherwise because he's Stevie. He's a genius. We'll let him have this one. So Stevie presents Saturnalia. Very, very unusual. <laughs> yes. So my <laughs> vote goes for Santa and the excellent <laughs> movie that you uh, that you uh, talked us through. I do think that actually, after what you've described as the amount of films out there in the uh, in the Christmas cinematic universe. Uh, that is a tale I do not recall seeing on the big screen. I think it could come through no. pretty strong. Yeah, I, I think you know. I, I, obviously, if we could get uh, King Charles III uh, to to play a role in that, I think that would be. Uh, I think that would be fantastic. Of course, we have about as much uh, chance of doing that as, as we do of getting Tom Hardy. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I bet Stevie I, Wonder would do mine though. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> you know, I feel like he would. I feel like he would know. I feel like he would. He would hear that King ears out oh, this, you know, the, this air conditioner is not quite right for <laughs> space. You know, he's going to know. He's going to know. Uh, he's got he's got the cry of the keenest ears around. So uh, as interesting as, as that is, and as much as I would like to see kind of some of that reenactment of of Saturnalia, I'm glad you, you steered clear of the political violence. Yes. Uh, but. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Santa because I did not steer clear of the political violence. Because... No, you did not. You you were <laughs> courageous that way in a way that I was very, not. Well very, done. Very much centered upon it, but you know, it's box office gold. Told. Yep. Yeah. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, I think, and then, and of course, tentatively titled would have to be a uh, uh, ye olde war on Christmas. Yes. So with with the proper spelling and proper calligraphic font, absolutely, yes, absolutely. All Beautiful. right, so there we that have is box from... office gold. Well, what 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 a treat, Andrew. I'm glad we enjoyed uh, this brief little uh, interregnum together. It really got the Christmas spirit flowing and the Saturnalia spirit. Yeah, flowing. the holiday spirit, whatever holiday it is. That's right. Uh, Every celebrate. Yes. So, uh, 
Well, then let us sign off. As always, our yeah. thanks, uh, of course, to Andy Snow for the theme song. Uh, and you know, look in all your channels. Catch up, folks. You've got you've got a great amount of material in season one. If you've if you've not gotten through it all, right. uh, it is there for you in these uh in these holiday spirit times where you've got plenty of free time to just enjoy several episodes of God versus God in a row. You know you want to do it. Right. Yeah, so I think we've probably taken most of your holiday, <laughs> your holiday <laughs> season. You should probably prepare for, for New Year's now. <laughs> but uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank like, you. Review. Yes. Join us on the socials, and we'll see you later. Yeah. So we'll see you sometime in early next year. We'll have some announcements. Watch our social accounts uh, for what that second season will look like. It's gonna be. It's gonna be exciting. We're looking forward to sharing with you. Uh, Andrew, always a pleasure. Until next yep. time, until 2023, uh, folks, have a Merry Christmas and a swinging Saturnalia. <laughs> See you soon, folks. Yo! Yo!